1: As having fans now and people who are like diehard fans of the things that I'm doing, like you know, they just people who meet you and say like, it's like I can't believe I just like shook your hand and do it, and you're like, like what do you think I'm gonna do? Like, I'm just gonna go back after there's some you know catch up on Fear the Walking Dead. You know, it's like in your life, you're like, well, I'm not, you know, I don't like sleep in like a weird, some sort of a chamber, and they they bring yeah, because to you yourself, you're always you are a regular person.
0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much for all your support. I'll never, ever stop saying it. You guys are absolutely unbelievable the way you reach out to me in every form known to social media. It's truly, truly incredible how you guys are and without you this show is nothing and the shows that are coming up are truly extraordinary you're going to be very very happy today's show is no exception with big j okerson and if you need to reach me at all just find me at at barry Katz on twitter and instagram i will answer all of your comments questions concerns Just be patient with me. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest, and I know you're going to love this guy. So here goes. Big Jay Okerson is one of the most beloved and easily recognizable comedians in the country. His easy charm and dirty delivery endear him to audiences every night at the greatest comedy clubs in New York City as well as all over the nation where he regularly headlines the best venues as well as the most respected festivals like Bonnaroo, Jager's Corn Tour, Rockstar Energy Drinks Mayhem Fest, and Funnier Dye's Die's Oddball Festival. He's wowed audiences at the prestigious Just for Laughs Montreal Festival an impressive four times, both on The Nasty Show and with his solo show, The American Storyteller. And he's a fan-favorite guest on one of the most popular shows on SiriusXM with Ron Bennington. Last year, Jay's Comedy Central Hour special, Big Jay Oakerson, live at Webster Hall, premiered filmed at the legendary music venue in new york city providing the perfect heavy metal vibe for the show where jay's raw compelling and honest to the core comedy took viewers on a journey of brutal truths about his relationship with his teenage daughter sexual tension between him and his best friend and advice to women on how to delicately handle a man with an unfortunate penis size His first album, An American Storyteller, is a one-hour onslaught of unbridled awesomeness and raunchy rock and roll hilarity recorded at Stand Up New York, and his second album with Comedy Central Records, The Crowdwork Sessions, What's Your Fucking Deal, recorded live at The Stand, captures Jay's raunchy off-the-cup essence with a full hour of only crowd work. You can also catch him as the co-host of two wildly popular podcasts, The Most Offensive Podcast on Earth, The Legion of Skanks with Louis J. Gomez and Dave Smith, and SDR, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Show with Ralph Sutton. He's also the co-host of The Bonfire on Comedy Central Radio, Series XM 95, alongside Dan Soder, Monday through Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. In television, longtime fans of Jay's will also remember him Neal, the sexually ambiguous owner of a New York City rock club on IFC's Z-Rock, and from his appearances on Comedy Central's Premium Blend, Comedy Central Presents, and Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. Additionally, he's appeared on This Is Not Happening with Ari Shafir, Comedy Underground with David Tell, FX's Louie, and Inside Amy Schumer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's such a pleasure to introduce my guest today. Been a long time coming, and I'm glad he's here with us today. Please welcome my guest, Big Jay Okerson.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I got to call you Little Jay (laughs) Okerson. You look like you lost a family of four. (laughs) Um,
1: Well, technically, I lost a family of two, but not to just divorce. But uh, I have... uh, No, yeah, I tried to... The comics... At my age now, uh, are like knocking off sometimes. Pretty some ch- trying to get At it together. Your age? What do you mean, your age? You know, it's funny. I I'd, I'd agree with you on that. I don't know when How there was a you? switch into anything forty. You know, they have there's, there's a great video online that I'm sure you've seen a zillion times. I believe it was your roast <laughs> outside of the Boston Comedy <laughs> yes, Club, where Kevin
0: Hart's running and around, Kevin Hart, and and the
1: and that was our group that, that who came up from Philadelphia in the same car every day it was. Uh, me, Keith Robinson, Kevin Hart, Kurt Metzger. And in that video, Kev was, you know, it shows so much that Kev, even as we were all in it the same amount of time, and Kev was just as young as, as me and Kurt were, but he's in the middle of that whole thing, just, you know, in the middle of the slamming each other back and forth and making jokes about each other. And then Patrice makes fun of Kev, and and then Patrice just goes, Kev, you think you're so in that you can endorse other hacks, because that's why you brought uh, Jay and Quentin Tarantino face. He calls <laughs> Kurt, and the camera just swings over for a second. And it's fun. I watched it recently, and when you see it, it's uh, it almost like hits you in the chest where you're like, "Wow, we were like kids. We were 19, 20 years old." And so that's what I mean. So it's not old at all. It's just there's people who've been doing who are my age who have been doing comedy 11 years. So I've been like I'm 19 or something going on. So it's that's pretty crazy to see. Like I don't know, and I don't know when that switch happens. I don't know when I felt like I was the guy like trying to get in and pass at clubs to, like, you're like, oh, I've been working at them for over a decade.
0: How have you changed as a person since that time outside the Boston Comedy Club for my roast? Was that my 40th birthday roast sure, or something? Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it is. Have I changed as a person? I mean, my life changed a lot, so I guess I've changed and definitely experience. When I see that video, I, I know, like, what I was thinking at those times and everything, and sort of the innocence to it is great because when business gets involved and this is when everything goes, like that's when you feel like there's a pressure to it that you never saw anything else. Even with like uh, acting stuff I've done or the or the constant, you know, to, what's your story? What's your sitcom going to be? What's your idea? And, and sometimes, you know, I just get very like, uh, I don't know. I, mean, I feel like sitcoms so come and go that if you poured your heart into something like that, like how fleeting it can be, and that's why I enjoy, I'm such a, you know, these last three years now and several more years than that doing podcasting, but doing radio on uh Sirius XM is like the way that reaches people and the discoverability of it, how you people just be in their cars. They have Sirius, they put it on and they find it is like such like a, like I like that. So I've kind of found my confidence and stride and finding my fans like that and doing comedy. So my confidence is more than I was when I knew when I was that kid outside the thing. I've changed as a person in that for sure. And then also, you know, raising a daughter, sense of responsibility. I, I think having a kid so young also is what I took my trajectory. was a little bit like paced but slow. And your daughter's because, how old again? She's 15, almost 16. And you were married for how long? Uh, we were married. Well, we're still technically married. We have to get that official divorce. But uh, I, we got married. When my daughter was five. We did as white trash as possible. But she was five, so she attended the wedding. And uh, we're, we were married like and together for about seven years. And then uh, broke up. I've been with my girlfriend now for several years now, too. She produces my radio show, and she produced the Crowdwork TV show we did on CISO. So when did you get separated from your wife? So about, I guess, five years ago now. So we were together for like, a, like 14 years. So five years you haven't
0: finalized the divorce
1: no it's really dragging our feet <laughs> but we probably should i know i have you a lot go of business mediation people. um no we we just kind of worked it out like between us like civilly where everyone's like very close still it's all very family situation which Do is they great live near you they don't live too far and uh and because of my schedule being crazy my ex-wife actually is really cool about it she brings my daughter in to the city to see me like several times a week and stuff and we have dinner so it's like it all stays pretty close and tight which is nice because that could go haywire does she like your girlfriend? Mm-hmm. yeah very much that's kind of a cool place when you reach very recently when I was out of town like last weekend they all went to like the beach together in uh, in Long Island and I'm like that's a very cool situation from what it was you know because breaking up in any way is going to be awful so it's definitely an awful several months but very different now which is great
0: So for those people who haven't seen Jay, when I started seeing Jay, he was a guy who went up to the stage, he planted his feet, had the microphone in front of him, and delivered the comedy. And he was just a regular guy, jeans, sneakers, and t-shirt kind of guy, normally Mm -hmm. a big black t-shirt, and that's how I knew him. The chapter two, Jay O'Kerson is a guy who doesn't plant his feet. He puts a stool on the stage and sits down. He's got a ring in his nose. He's got a beard that looks like he's Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. <laughs> he's got probably, I would say, the ones I can see, God knows what I can't see, he's probably got 10 or 20 tattoos on him. Yeah. He's got a keychain wallet, one of those chains that goes way down to your knee and comes back up to your wall in these
1: hallways really echoes it's like a like it's haunted by the ghost of me (laughs) coming in the hallway
0: and so it's an entirely different big j okerson so do you mind sharing with the audience what happened from the guy who stood there and planted his feet on stage had no tattoos no
1: rings no beard I definitely, by the time you saw me, I definitely had some tattoos, but no, but nowhere near as many as I have now. But I had a few tattoos at that point. For one, it kind of goes also in line with the thing I said about confidence. One, when you first met me, definitely, and I sp- I've spoken about this a lot recently, actually, that because of my like size that I was, being such a big kid, that I used had to shop at the big and tall stores only – and if you wanted to wear like name brand things you just kind of had to get like it was expensive and it was like just very that's like jeans like hip jeans and t-shirts and I started off in the all-black comedy circuit too so I kind of like it was my natural style I guess for what I could fit in and it kind of worked in that black circuit too you know I kind of looked the part even if I didn't sound the part and uh and I, you know, I would pander for sure and start start to sound the part. And then, as things came on, as I, as I got more comfortable and confident in my stand up too, I think all these things I started to feel like a uniqueness and an individuality, and like just a sense of all these things. And it is childish too, but all these things I would have loved to do when I was younger, whether it be even still like you know putting color in my hair or getting uh, a piercing of some sort, or tattoos, it was, uh, I had the confidence to kind of just like, pick a style, you know, something that I felt comfortable in, or I thought I looked good, or cool in, and that was sort of, more the natural progression of that, and then, what that led to, as far as on stage, was especially coming out of that black circuit, it was a very, uh, being animated, played much to your advantage, in that scene, because it's a lot of physical comedy, and then, as I started doing more especially mainstream clubs and everything too I thought when I watched Patrice make that switch from standing to sitting also because and also how much I did love uh, the Bill Cosby himself special when I was younger it was, was big for me I noticed Patrice I liked the vibe of a guy being that big and, and, and like hulking presence on the stage like when you're standing up you seem to be especially in small stages uh, the comic strip the Boston place you feel like you're looming over the audience like So if you're going to be harsh at all, or a dirty comic as I am, uh, you you know it seems very in their face. It seems like you're yelling it at them. Where I thought when Patrice started sitting down on stage, it it, because his demeanor didn't change, but it presented more of like an approachable vibe that I thought people would come to him. And then they want to hear what he's going to say, and I kind of wanted to adopt that also. And so, not when I would perform with him because that would be rude. But I would, uh, when I wasn't with Patrice, I would sit on a stool too. And I got very much into the idea of I liked very much the crowd seemed to like lean into you versus like them being on their heels from you.
0: Now, did you call him up or take him aside and say, "I know you started doing this in New York, and nobody's really sitting on a stool here in New York," and I? really like the feeling of it are you going to be upset if i do it or you never had the conversation
1: no for sure and uh yeah i mean we definitely have talked about like because we he definitely we've had the conversations like in agreeance of like why that feels so good and but also when i worked with patrice and also by the time he started sitting with regularity i wasn't even like working with him as much anymore on the road and if i but if i worked with somebody on the road that when i was featuring that uh that would sit down. You know, like Dave Attell, uh, I opened for him for so many years and he never minded if I sat and I asked him. He didn't mind if I sat on a stool for my set. But if I was hosting, I would never do that to anybody. I think that's rude, <laughs> a rude energy to bring to a show, just sitting on a stool. And then you pop up, like, okay, you guys ready for some comedy? I feel like that's a, a pretty dick thing to do. But uh, yeah, we definitely, I don't know if we had the conversation about like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this also more than just like two guys acknowledging that they do that. But Patrice, was definitely no loss for knowledge that how much I admired him and took his advice. I mean, he directly gave me advice on comedy and how to approach it and do it so many times. I think he was happy that I adopted a lot of the things he said.
0: One of the things i am been wanting to talk to you about, when I first started seeing
1: you, I saw
0: material that I was really going over really well. But I saw something that I think... Bothered me, so I felt when you were on stage, your persona and your cadence and the rhythm of how you delivered the comedy. If I closed my eyes, I saw Dave Attell. Sure. And when I opened my eyes, I saw Big J Okerson. Now the material wasn't the same. There was no jokes that were similar. It was just. The rhythm and mm-hmm. the cadence and the voice. But I saw how Dave loved you and took you under his wing, and he was so excited about having you perform with him and be around him and hang that I just realized why should anything bother you if it doesn't bother him?
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I for sure, especially at that point in my career when he kind of grabbed me and took the trajectory of like my mentors. Really was. I mean there's uh, two Ray Gordon in Philadelphia just on a, on a local level who was super helpful and great to me uh, and just kind of like you know get me acclimated to being confident on stage and learn sort of how to do it and Keith Robinson brought me up to New York and got me in with all the, you know the people that became dear long-term friends and mentors as Patrice and Colin Quinn and Nick DiPaolo and you know and Norton Bill Burr, all these guys that we were able to become friends with. And then uh, Patrice kind of took me uh, to a point also, with and just kind of and, and staying friends with him, like his advice. But um, David Attell, I worked with him once at Caroline's. I don't think he really watched much of my set at all, but we had a good time hanging out. And then I got into the Comedy store. So this is 14 years ago, and I... I went to him one night there because I had a couple things already where people you know, people said it and it hurt my feelings because I got it because at that point I'm very... I hope... I like to think I'm pretty software. I give myself a pretty good... So you didn't know. If not under... No, it wasn't that I didn't know. I felt it because what I did know I was trying to avoid was I'd get caught in a thing I'd open for... Dane Dane Cook gave me opportunities to open for him at Caroline's before he went... Right before he went to jump to the theaters. And he loved you. He was great to me but um, but a week after... Two weeks beyond working with Dane Cook, like, you know, I'm, I'm changing, you know, I'm throwing kicks on stage and doing like, because I, I loved, I thought he was great, you know, so I liked that kind of comedy and I'd work with Brian Regan and I'd do something, more. you know, you're just absorbing all these different things that you'd be impressed by and I got it. And Dave Attell, certainly the first day he brought me and, uh, Kurt Metzger, he let us go down Keith Robinson Bros downstairs to sell her to watch a And I know a at that point from his young comedian special and his HBO half hour and I been asked something an Aspen they had on HBO or something. And I thought he was hilarious, but I, I wouldn't have said like, oh, that's my favorite comic, you know, I like guess that's, that's the guy the best guy to ever do it. And then we went down to the comedy cellar and just the effortless that was still a smoking inside, and he's just smoking. just the effortless who gives a shit Cool, kind of romantic style of how he just you were watching a guy do stand-up comedy like I was drawn to that completely and then so I was then I became a huge fan and then when I got into the cell and I was getting a lot of people saying you're just doing a tell you're just doing a tell which always did bother me because I did say it the same way one thing I knew for sure everything I said on stage was uh, mine but that was it was my own it was my the way I wanted to do it at the time the way I thought I could do it the best I could um, as I was learning so I was never like you know his thing, but sure, certainly, I mean, flat out down to the mark of you'd be on stage and go, am I lying? Everybody. And then you'd go, you know, in your head, you still go, it's like shit, you know, what's, what's happening? What am I doing? And I'd fall in that for sure. And, and you just, and you pick up things when you conversate, you know, if my girlfriend says things like me now, you know, and when I got into the cell, I was worried about it because I didn't want him to not like me or think I was doing something. Like that. So I said, Dave, I'm getting a lot of people saying that I sound a lot like you. Uh, would you do me a favor and just like, I hate to ask this of you, but watch my set, please tonight, and like tell me I'm on after you. Tell me if you think there's any thing. What he did was funny. Was I watched him as I'm doing my set? I'm watching him in the hallway, and he's smoking. And like you know, the most I feel like I'm getting on my punchlines is a little like you know, shoulders of like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's the best. And I'm like, oh, he's not. He's got a problem with this. So I get off stage, and it was funny. I said, what, what do you what do you think? Is there any problem there? I swear you, he never said I think you sound like me or you're fine he goes what are you doing September this date and he, he goes you want to open for me at stress factory and I was like yeah like a hundred percent and years later and telling upon telling that story I always think I believe like he probably did see that it was heading that direction and I think I'd I like the thing you know because of his belief in me before I got my comedy central hour he was so frustrated with my lack of like industry response that he just called me and said he was going to like fund my comedy special. I don't want to put his like thing. I don't think he would do that for everybody. So I don't want people to start bombarding him with that now, but just in a thing, that's a real thing that he was going to do, which is amazing. You know, very, very generous to me, overpaid me for years. But I always think back that I think he may have seen it going that way. And was like, if he keeps me close to him, I have to kind of develop my own thing. And uh, I thank him for that a million times over. Yeah, I don't even steer away from that being a thing. It sure can. And I felt in all of us, me, Mike Vecchione, Kurt, the guys who came here from Philly, the three of us together, and like watch this guy and just go, man, that's what you're supposed to be doing. You know, even if it's not, you know, I'm not set up punch at all, but I love that he is, you know. I I love watching how he does it. When you first started
0: as a stand-up comic, And you said to yourself,
1: I'd like that kind of career. Mm -hmm. Who was it? Oh, I guess, I mean, really technically, like a Dice or something. I thought what Dice did was really cool in comedy. I just legitimately became friends with Dice about two months ago. And uh, it was a big kick for me. He knows that. Like, he knows how, like, uh, it's very important to my childhood, like Dice Clay when he came in, you know. So. Uh, that sort of thing, because I never got into it. Because, I didn't think, like, comedy was a way to become, like, a star. I didn't look at becoming Eddie Murphy because you do Beverly Hills Cop. I thought about becoming Eddie Murphy to just be, do stand-up comedy. I thought, like, comedy specials. It was funny, after I got my Comedy Central Hour special, my agent said, he's like, That's, how cool, great news is that? And the next day, and I went... What after that? (laughs) I was like, I don't know. That was kind of my end game. It took me, you know. I was like, I want to do my, and I always use example. I want to do my Bill Cosby himself. I want to do my Delirious, my Dice Man Cometh. You know, the thing that people will look back and say that you know this special, the name of the special. You know, the first time I heard somebody abbreviate the title of my first stupid comedy album, you know. They're like, oh, I just checked out American Storyteller, you know, they, or they called it Story. I checked out Storyteller. Like they shortened the title, and I was like, look at that. Look, like it's got like a, you know, you know, like a name that's like familiar to somebody now. It's kind of neat. But um, but yeah, the, the acting bug like it never caught me, so I never looked at it. It was always like the career of the comic that I thought was awesome, George Carlin. You know, like I wasn't even like you know sacrilegious to say I wasn't like a huge Carlin fan, but I thought he was great. But uh and there's specials of his that I love but I wasn't a huge fan but I, what a career of just like people came Regan people come to see him do stand-up not based off of his movies or anything like that
0: do you sometimes when you're coming up in the New York scene you're around a lot of people a lot of people doing a lot of bad things mm-hmm. a lot of people doing a lot of dangerous things do you used to hang around some of the people that are no longer with us sure and say to yourself when you're hanging out with them and you took that walk home or that taxi home, I don't know if that's the last time I'm going to see that person.
1: No, because I never had anybody, uh, I mean, you know, the person, yeah, I guess like in my time, like how much I said another person who's been really great to me in my career is like, you know, like Artie Lang, like everyone, you know, but everyone worries about Artie at some point or another. But, um, you know, he hangs in there and he looks, he's doing great now, you know, and everyone's always rooting for him. No, the people that have passed on me have been like shock overnight. You know, Mike DiStefano, uh, the way he went crazy. Patrice was the that was the biggest like hit to me because like Patrice was my you know call him up and be like, please tell me why I don't quit comedy. Like I don't know what's happening. You know, and he's the shut up, stupid, and and hang out and like talk me off a ledge. So like that was the the biggest like smack for me in it. But I mean, all of it's it's so bizarre. I never thought so. Geraldo was a shock. Geraldo was a big shock. Yeah that one hit me pretty good again because like it's also funny too having a a daughter as young as I did and a responsibility to that I hung out late and did you know everything that I had to do in comedy I'd stay out till three in the morning but then my job was to go home and like feed my daughter at three in the morning and then put her back to sleep then my ex-wife would get up at six in the morning for law school and feed her put her back down i get up at 9 o'clock and you know we had like a system worked out which kind of prevented me from doing like the go to LA and like you know kind of freewheeling thing of like hey we're all gonna go party at so and so's house uh, you know on that you know that smaller level so I even like friends of mine who've had drug problems when I find out when they're in rehab or you know or they're saying they're going to meetings now I'm like oh I didn't even know they had a you know no one really in I didn't really dwell in that world at all so I was, you know, the, Geraldo, you'd hear the stories about, and then I'd see Geraldo at the time that I would see him, you know, it was midnight or something, and he's fine. You know, it's not, I guess it's before it goes bad or something. I was kind of not around for those hangs.
0: Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment, and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office and. Everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get a $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the Air Doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the Air Doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product, it really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. I want to go way, way back, if you don't mind. Take sure. me through where you grew up, the economic dynamic of your family, and what was your life like as a child, and what was your first
1: inspiration to getting into this crazy business? Instead of, um I grew up in Philly, West Philadelphia in a pretty much Jewish and black neighborhood and, uh, went to public school. My dad, uh, mom split when I was three and, uh, he got remarried, but he never, he got remarried twice. He's been with his wife now for a long time, but they, uh, like he always lived kind of like far, like he kind of moved like not far, but you know, an hour or more away. Uh, most of my life, and then when I was 11, he moved to Ohio, with uh, to be with his wife that he has now. So, I guess I've been together like 30 years. That's crazy. Um, and I lived with my mom. My mom was single till I was 11. Then she met my stepfather, then had my brother, and for the next eight years, every four years she would have a kid. So she has three kids uh, that are 11 years. 15 years and 19 years younger than me, my siblings. And I kind of took care of them.
0: Do you remember how old you were the first time you woke up in the morning and there's a guy coming
1: out of your mom's bedroom? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Every saw guys come out of the bedroom. The one I always say that I think is funny was my mom, I think, was hooking up with a cop or something at one point. And I do remember waking up one morning and being, because I, we, very small apartment I lived in. And uh, my mom's room and my room were right next to each other. And it wasn't anything like that. I'd just wake up and, like, you know, I was scared kid in the morning. I wake up and look at my mom's room and she wasn't there. And then the, the apartment's empty. And I just remember going <laughs> to the, the window at the front of our apartment, looking outside. And, like, she was just out front, like, in a robe, <laughs> you know, like like saying goodbye, like hugging a cop goodbye. Like, oh, I think I put it together pretty quick. <laughs> She's great My mom had me young So it's like I had a young mom She had me when she was 19 So even now She's only 60 So she's like I had a pretty young mom My whole life growing up So she Like you know if she doesn't ag- Agree with her Things My stuff's ridiculous She laughs at all But she knows She knows why I'm better than anybody And then But when my mom was young When she had me And my dad left My grandmother And grandfather Kind of took care of me a lot I stayed at their house a whole lot, and then my grandfather passed away.
0: Why did they take care of me?
1: Just my mom had to, you know, work, and they kind of, like, you know, I think they wanted me there. My grandparents really liked, liked having my energy around, and, uh, and my mom was like a, a kid, you know, so she was working, and, you know. I remember my mom doing things that, nothing bad at all, but, I mean, just things that, Put her age into perspective for me, especially being forty now. But like, I remember my mom like stretching the phone cord out all the way across the apartment to sit on the couch and just talk to her girlfriends on the phone for hours. And because she was twenty three, you know, or twenty four years old, so I think it's when my grandparents went pretty hands on with me. Not that that was bad at all, but I think my mom was just a kid, you know, she was trying to figure it out. And then when she turned twenty. Eight or twenty nine, she went back to school and became like a medical professional. And her and my stepfather are both respiratory therapists to this day. So they uh, and then when they started having kids, you know, we had like a family unit in that house then, and and it was good. But we were it was a hand, you know, hand to mouth growing up always. Like I was stung somebody outside. My growing up was, you know, on a certain day of the week I'd go when I started to drive, especially like pick up my mom and stepfather's check from the hospital and then go take it to a check cashing place and while I was there pay the electric bill and the phone bill at the check cashing place and come home with the rest of the cash and it's kind of like how we live for a long time. They're doing much better now just as they've grown in their careers. But, um, so yeah, not very wealthy at all and then we moved when they got a little bit of money when they started to make some money we moved to South Jersey in a nice, like, you know, townhouse development, cookie cutter, kind of like, you know, on a golf course in South Jersey thing. And we lived there, and that was uh, that was good. That was, like, slightly better living. But, again, they worked a lot, so my childhood was taken care. I didn't really have teen jobs a lot because I took care of my siblings because I was so much older than them. I mean, right up until I moved to New York for comedy. And when we moved to South Jersey, I lost touch with some of my friends from Philadelphia. And right after high school finished, a friend of mine, uh, Jamie Bittner, uh, Jamie Bittner-Kubler now. She's married. But she, me and her caught up with each other. And this is before, you know, this wasn't social media. It was just phone numbers, still worked. And she moved to South Jersey and said, let's get to dinner and, and catch up. And she was asking me about my life, and I was in community college going just to do what my mom and stepfather do, because I know you can go for two years and make good money. And I worked at a Seven Eleven, and she was like, oh, it's disappointing, you always... Uh, we're such a big fan of comedy. And that's true. That's what she pointed out. Like, I was always a diehard fan of comedy. I was always making like little tapes and stuff when I was a kid with my friends, the funny stuff we thought, with sound effect records or whatever. Just ridiculous uh, things. But I always like to be funny. And then a big bonding moment for me and my stepfather, as I said before, was uh, Dice Clay. When he let me watch Dice when my mom was at work. And me and him just loved it. You know, and it hit me at the right time being 12. And that's what got me probably super into stand-up across the board. And then my whole, like, childhood, I just remember I'd go, Friday nights we can go to West Coast Video as the video store, and I just went to the comedy and just got all the HBO half hours. And everybody would be Bob, Kat with Roseanne, Carlin, to, you know, the young comedians. But when we got cable when I was 17, I watched a ton. I, I just watched that The A-List and all those shows, you know, when Premium Blend first came out and and all these lounge lizards, these shows. And I would just watch anything. And I thought it was all great. I only remember the names of the comics who I didn't think were funny, I think, at the time because I thought everyone was fantastic. And she was like, I'm so surprised. Why did you never try it? And I never even thought of what the lower levels of comedy were. I wouldn't even have thought, you know, what's an open mic night? I was, you know, uh, I was 19. So I was like, I don't know, what to, and the next day I happened to be in Philadelphia, my friend was buying sneakers, and I saw the comedy club that was there that had been there forever apparently, and there were several different names, it was David Brenner's at one point, now at this point it was a, a black comedy club called The Laugh House, and I saw their sign it says they have open mic nights on Thursdays, and I went in and kind of asked about it, and then I gave it a try. It went good the first time with terrible jokes, The audience was predominantly black? All black, pretty much. There was a few white guys on the show, but it was an open mic, but it was an open mic that was... uh, The the club was one of the owners worked as a DJ on the hip-hop radio station in Philadelphia, the popular one, uh, Power 99, I think it was, and they promoted it on that. So this is... When I say open mic, coming to New York was such a culture shock when you'd go to do... The Thursday open mic at the comic strip or wherever, because the open mic we were doing was 300 people, a DJ, you know, it was like so over the top. It was like Sunday nights at the Boston, and so I ended up doing that. Was the first shows I ever did in New York was Talent Sunday Night the Boston, because I was so in that black comedy circuit. It was it was such a fun show to do, and I always loved that show because that's where very early on too I'd see Attell would come over and do that just to see you know if he could do it, and I always loved. Thought that was a very interesting thing about him that to give it a whirl in a place where he knows he's against the wall.
0: Believe it or not, a lot of great comics never in a million years would walk in there on that night. No, but the thing about Atel, which I always loved, and you as well, there, although it was more of a product of going on stage for him, he'd already experienced success in the white clubs, yeah, and he decided to take the risk, which is something that everybody should do
1: but very few do absolutely no i think it was so valuable for me starting the way i did and just kind of even the way i got in through that circuit as hell i by chance met keith robinson who you know really took the chance to like kind of endorse us so keith
0: robinson was already more established in philly no not even no not in philly at all keith robinson was already well established in new york so when you were starting in philly it was kurt
1: metzger Kevin Hart, you, who else was in that group? That's it from that particular – Like the next group behind us was uh, Joe DeRosa, Mike Vecchione, and those guys uh, came up, like, right behind us. And then uh, several more people after, but those were the guys. Like, Keith pulled us up, and then we pulled up, like, you know, DeRosa and everybody. Who and then, came to New York first, you, Kirk, or Kevin? Uh. Kevin never came to New York. We all lived still back in Philly, and I was in South Jersey still. And we used to drive up. The reason we met Keith was Keith's uh, mother was sick, and by chance, that's he took care of her. So he moved closer back to Philadelphia. He moved back to Philadelphia to take care of her daily, but still took all of his spots and everything in New York. So you know, to a degree, he was also looking for traveling buddies. You know, so he took me and Kevin, Kurt. And uh, and me and Kev, uh, very quickly thereafter, because Kurt did it very immediately, just took the leap. He just got a place up there. He found, like, you know, a a room. Kurt doesn't care. He'd live in a shanty, you know, somewhere. So he was like, this will work for now. And he just went up uh, super quick. So then it really became me, Keith, and Kev driving up. And Keith just, like, bringing us into his fold of his people, because, you know, we we did it like six days a week for years, going back and forth.
0: So you go up to New York, and you start spending more time there. And it's always fascinating when a group of people who start together start making the journey together. So which one of the three of you was the first one that made the inroads into the clubs where actually
1: they were getting on in regular spots, places. That was Kev, for sure. This sounds like I'm making an analogy almost, but this is exactly what happened. Uh, Louis Schaefer, when Keith brought us over to... Just so
0: the audience knows, Louis Schaefer, now living in the UK, was probably the greatest doorman MC you could ever have. So he would be outside. He started the Comedy Cellar, and then he came to my club, the Boston. And he would be able to bring people into a club from the outside in the streets and pack the place and then host a show and his whole shtick was Louis Schaefer, not gay. Yeah, Louis <laughs> Schaefer, not gay. He went to his house in his closet. He had 10 blue blazers, <laughs> yep. 10 white Oxford shirts, a couple of ties that were the same color, five pairs of jeans and the same shoes. And, and he'd wear the same thing every night. And his card was simply... A business card that was all white, and there was a quarter tape to it. and His name was at the top that said Lewis Schaefer, and then right write, Call Me, with no phone number on it. As
1: <laughs> that blue blazer, I liked his punchlines about that. He would tell stories. You know, he was a shtick guy, really. It wasn't like no personal jokes, but he'd talk about getting a tease as a child. And he goes, the kids would call me gay and kick sand on my blue blazer. <laughs> he used to make me laugh. But, you know, he almost called it right away with Kev. He said to the three of us, he was like, Kev, he's like, get in here. You know, you're good-looking, charismatic, black comic that can entertain white people. You know, basically get in here. And then me and Curdy put his hands on our chest and was like, we've got 7,000 of you. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, he was right, you know, that's why. I, you know, And it shows in what happened uh, with the careers. But, you know, it's what i found interesting at all you know i'm not i'm not a wealthy person or anything like that but just the 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 career i've had you know thus far actually in the fact that i have gotten to a point where i'm not struggling in the world and and scared about you know what next year is going to bring so much or you know living that fear of like is something gonna pop here and everything like you look back on the journeys It's kind of cool the way it goes, you know, however it goes, if it happens for you fast and you're living the high life when you're young, that's great. But I kind of like being like 40 and starting to now be able to make decisions if you think you're going to buy a house or something. You know, it seems like the time that I should be thinking about that. I don't know if I've being like, you know, a high paid 20 something year old, like who knows how that could have gone for me particularly. As long as it happens, this thing. as long as a kind of a time comes where you're like, okay, I'm in a stride here, you don't, you know, because then if not, you get bitter. You know what I mean? If nothing ever happens, that's when people get bitter. Are
0: you at a point now where you know that you're never going to have to worry about things,
1: or are you never at that point? No, I don't think you're ever at that point. And I'm, um, like I said, I'm in no position, even like financially or career-wise to rest on my laurels in any way. I just know i found the things... Where I'm at now is i found the things that I I know I do well for what people want to hear me do, you know, for what I like to do, how I like to entertain people. I've found those uh, avenues, which I love. What I said is radio, just kind of doing that, just having every day of an event, but every day just a channel to talk to people and if people want to call in the show which is very interactive which i like it's just conversation it's you know it's me and dan soder so i'm laughing with a friend for two hours is the job you know and as having fans now and people who are like hard fans of the things that i'm doing like you know they there's people who meet you and say like it's like i can't believe i just like shook your hand and do and you're like like what do you think I'm going to do? Like, I'm just going to go back here if there's some, you know, catch up on Fear the Walking Dead. You know, it's like in your might life you're like, well, I'm not, you know, I don't like sleep in like a, weird, some sort of a chamber, and they they bring yeah, because to you yourself you're always you are a regular person.
0: And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Wondery. Check out their lineup of some of the greatest podcasts in the world at Wondery.com, and AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get a $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best and the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life and instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And finally, Boku Superfoods, the purest, most potent, and delicious certified organic kosher and vegan superfood blends on the planet. Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people in 65 countries with their incredible formulated powers that you just add any liquid to and make the healthiest drinks or smoothies in the world. Just go to BokuSuperfood.com. That's B-O-K-U superfood.com. Look for the three-pack trial. Enter the promo code Barry at checkout. Just pay a minimal shipping fee and get a full week's supply of Boku superfood for free. I guarantee you'll look and feel better and understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode.
1: No one can make you stop doing it. Like you can keep doing it always. And when I wasn't on the road or getting industry, uh, love at all, I was able to keep working on the local level in New York and just get better and keep doing it. And in the moment where it just feels like it's miserable, why can't I get on stage? Why am I just hanging out? Why? Hang in there, keep doing it.
0: Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
1: You get out the money Drop that fancy car all the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamer. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison.